thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 27th of November. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. I'm Ben Valsler and I'm joined this week by Dave Ansell. Hello. This week we've got a whole new way of looking at the world. We'll explore new ways to see tiny things and to see inside metal structures. In the news we'll be looking at a long-term study of statins and unearthing the world's oldest fishhook. So if you have any questions or comments for us, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page, that's at facebook.com slash thenakedscientists, or drop us an email. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist, and this week we're looking at new ways of seeing the world. The optical microscope revolutionised science. It gave us access to an unprecedented world too small to see with the human eye. It's still a relatively simple design, essentially a light source and a series of lenses that magnify the image that you're looking at. There are also some very simple ways that we can adapt it to get increased resolution, a very tight depth of field, and even three-dimensional images. Confocal microscopy was invented by renowned scientist Professor Marvin Minsky back in the 1950s, and it's now being put to excellent use by, amongst others, Dr Abigail Woodfin from the Centre for Microvascular Research at Queen Mary University of London. Abigail, thank you ever so much for joining us. Hello. First of all, could you just tell us a bit more, what is confocal microscopy? Okay, uh, so confocal microscopy refers to the technique of looking at three-dimensional objects through a series of two-dimensional slices, um, much like an MRI machine would look through your body during a scan. And then after you've you've taken the series of slices down through a three-dimensional object, they're reconstructed to to rebuild the 3D object that you're looking at. Uh, And that enables you to get much better resolution than if you were looking at the entire object uh, in one go. So this is very much like uh, computerised tomography. So, uh, for example, when you take a series of x-rays and then put them together, you get that wonderful view that you can sort of flick book through the image and see an entire 3D aspect rather than just having to look at the one plane, the one single two-dimensional image. How does that actually work? Um, so it's used in conjunction uh, with fluorescence illumination of the, the objects you're looking at. 
So what we do is we use antibodies which are generated to specifically bind uh, one particular protein and the antibodies have a coloured fluorescent tag bound onto them. So then when you uh, add these antibodies to your cells or tissues or whatever you're interested in, they bind to your particular protein uh, and you then use laser excitation to see the location of these fluorescent antibodies because the, the objects we're looking at are so small that they are essentially transparent um, in the absence of using these you know, coloured tags to mark the particular structures. What sort of structures are you actually marking out with these tags? Uh, We're specifically interested in um, the blood vessels and how white blood cells or leukocytes react with blood vessel walls during inflammation. So we would use uh, antibodies which bind to proteins within the blood vessel wall, such as one called PCAM. Uh, And we also use um, uh, cells where a gene for a green fluorescent protein from jellyfish has been inserted into the white blood cells. So the white blood cells themselves also uh, have a green fluorescent colour. So there's lots of tricks you can employ to make sure that you're only seeing the bits that you want to see. Under your microscope or in the images that you get, what does the rest of the surrounding tissue actually look like? Is it completely invisible? Um, it depends. If you're When you're looking with transmitted light or you know, normal white light, which has... Um, all of the different wavelengths of light in, then you can see sort of some textures and some structure. You can see blood flowing through blood vessels and you can see the white blood cells as sort of transparent spheres rolling along the inside of blood vessel walls. However, when you're looking with the laser excitation to look at the fluorescent tags which you've got in your tissue, then only the um, the fluorescent tags will be uh, picked up. Everything else will be negative. It won't have any colour. So quite often with advanced microscopy techniques, what we need to do is take the sample that we want to look at and then we freeze it or we section it or we prepare it, we stain it. And ultimately it means that it it certainly can't be part of a living organism. This sounds like, if you're seeing blood flowing through things, that you can actually use this with something in situ while it's still alive. And so rather than having to try and take a a moment frozen in time and use that to guess what's happening, you can actually watch the processes taking place inside blood vessels. Yeah, that's exactly right. The the confocal microscopy um, has existed for some time, um, but the the time it took to take one of these 3D images... um, was such that it was not really possible to look at dynamic cellular interactions uh, and also we needed the ability to add the fluorescent tags into living cells. So the work we've been doing um, has involved fluorescently tagging the living cells and looking at uh, the, the interactions with white blood cells with blood vessel walls uh, in, in living tissues. So... If, in order to see this in 3D, you need to take this series of slices, obviously it's going to limit you for how many, essentially, frames per second you can take. What What is the sort of temporal resolution? Are you seeing this in, in close to the you know, 24 frames per second that we see on cinema screens, or are we looking at something a little bit more time-lapse? It's a little bit more time-lapse. For the, for the work we've been doing most recently, um, I've been taking one of these 3D images uh, every minute, um, I could increase that slightly to doing, say, two per minute, uh, but that's for the for the size of tissue structure that I want to look at. That's my sort of temporal limit of resolution. Still, that's a, a, a phenomenal um, 
step forward in what we're actually able to see and, and create videos of these incredible processes happening. What's it actually told us so far about physiology? What's it led us to learn? Um, so the, the study of uh, the, the interaction of white blood cells with blood vessel walls has, has been going on for some years but has been limited by our ability to really look at these dynamic interactions in, in real time in vivo uh, or you know, in living tissues. So now that we, we have managed to get this increased spatial and temporal resolution, we've been able to actually watch the process of white blood cells migrating through blood vessel walls and into the surrounding tissues um, and answer questions that have not been able to be answered previously using the sort of snapshot images of exactly what route uh, the white blood cells take through the vessel wall, how long they take to do it, uh, do they move in just one particular direction or do they sort of change directions. Um, and we've managed to identify that the white blood cell migration um, can exhibit a sort of um, multi-directional um, behaviour so that they can whilst they go out of the blood vessel wall, they can also, in some cases, return back into the blood flow. So it's obviously opening some doors that weren't open before. What do you think will be the next step? How are we going to make this better, take it further? Um, I would say uh, the sort of the temporal resolution... Um, Improving that would enable you to look at faster processes. The things I look at are sufficiently slow cellular interactions that this temporal resolution is sufficient. Um, but faster temporal resolution would enable you to look at faster processes. Um, higher spatial resolution um, would enable you to see the sort of smaller structures and interactions. Um, and I think also increasing the, the quality of the fluorescent tagging um, would enable you to see different things. So, for example, the, the protein PCAM in blood vessel walls that I mentioned earlier uh, is what we use as our blood vessel marker. And that's the, the best marker that we have found. But if we could develop ways of fluorescently tagging you know, a whole host of different proteins within the blood vessel wall, then that would enable us to, to, work, to deduce sort of uh, things about the function of those proteins as well. And that'll give us a whole new multi-laminar way of looking at these things, I suppose. Well, thank you very much, Abigail. That's Dr Abigail Woodfin from Queen Mary, University of London. Over the last 400 years or so, microscopes have been developed so much they would often be unrecognisable to 17th century scientists. They can use invisible wavelengths of light, electrons or even atoms to see with. And some are even able to watch individual atoms moving around. But almost all microscopes have one thing in common, the lens. It might be magnetic or electric instead of being made of glass, but there's still an element which does the focusing. However, Professor Chang Hui Yang from the University of California Institute of Technology is attempting to do away with the lenses in a microscope altogether. So, um, Professor Yang, what is the problem with, put, with putting a lens in a microscope? Well, you run into uh, cost issues. Um, those are sophisticated uh, optical elements in a conventional microscope. Uh, does cost significant amounts of money to uh, fabricate and implement well. Um, you also run into the fact that you get astigmatism, uh, chromaticity, basically distortions that is intrinsic in a lens that you would have to live with or, um, or contend with. So essentially they're just a very complicated, difficult thing to make and if we can get away with them it just makes the whole thing easier and cheaper. Exactly. And uh, that's basically what um, um, the research going on in my group uh, is trying to do, is to basically come up with uh, other ways of doing microscopy in which lenses are not needed at all. Where did you get the idea of doing this from? 
Well, the idea sort of came from the fact that um, I guess uh, a lot of us see uh, floaters in our eyes. I'll just describe it to your audience, the, the audience that uh, may not have seen them. Um, floaters are basically debris that floats around uh, within your eyeball. And when they get close to the retinal layer itself, uh, and if you look up into a clear blue sky, um, the uh, shadow that those floaters will cast onto your retina uh, will be able to be picked up as uh, sharp images. What is interesting about floaters is that um, if you have floaters in your eyes, I, I, I encourage you to try the following experiment. Try um, removing or putting on eyeglasses or just try focusing or defocusing your eyes. And you'll notice that those floaters look equally clear no matter what you do. Uh, and this says that uh, floaters, the way you see them, doesn't depend on uh, the lenses in your eyes or eyeglasses uh, for doing imaging. So, so these are the little patterns which you see, or little kind of structures which float around, um, especially when you look at some bright light. I can exactly. I can vouch for this. I have a couple of floaters that I've been aware of since I was a very small child. And you're exactly right. They always seem to be equally well focused, regardless of whether I'm wearing glasses, not wearing glasses. Even if I have contact lenses in, the floaters are still there and they're still the same. For me, they look almost like bacteria under a microscope appropriately. They look like these sort of rod-shaped, blobby things with no real structure. Right. And um, the reason why you see them very clearly is because they are very close to your retinal layer itself. So just like if you put your hand very close to a table, you can see a clear shadow image. The same thing happens with these floaters. And by the way, those floaters are fairly tiny objects. They are typically on the orders of 100 to 200, uh, 100 microns uh, upwards. Uh, and yet when, when I see them, I see them you know, with very good details. Uh, and this suggests that uh, there is really, you know, other ways that you can do microscopy. For example, um, if you're really interested, you can, you know, imagine taking uh, objects that you want to see and inject it directly into your eye and then uh, use this floater phenomena to see things. <laughs> I'm guessing you're not um, <laughs> suggesting doing this. No, of course I'm not advocating that. The thing is this, um, thanks to the uh, fact that uh, cell phones now uh, almost uh, always contain a uh, cell phone camera, um, that actually... Uh, you know, allows us to have technologies that can do a, a very cheap uh, imaging using this strategy. So you'd essentially just take whatever you're trying to look at and put it directly onto the sensor from a cell phone camera or I guess something which you can just buy off the shelf. That's right. So they serve as the artificial retina. Uh, and if we actually uh, take cells and put them on or grow them on those chips, uh, we should be able to actually get uh, some sort of uh, uh, you know, middle resolution imaging performed with it. So how um, good a picture can you get by just taking a cell and putting it onto a um, camera chip? Okay, so uh, the typical uh, resolution you can get that way is about 4 microns. Uh, yeah, to set that in context, a typical cell uh, length is about 10 microns uh, in diameter. So you can't really see features within the cells this way, uh, but you can definitely tell the presence of the cells. And uh, what we did is uh, we further uh, improved the resolution by uh, uh, coming up with an approach in which uh, we take uh, a bunch of snapshots of these uh, cells as they are lying on, on top of this sensor chip uh, with the illumination uh, light source being uh, scanned around. Uh, and that actually gave us enough information that uh, we can then do processing to get microscopy resolution. So this images. is based on the idea that if you sort of, say, hold your hand a little bit away from the table and you move a light around, it's going to move the shadow around. Exactly. And now uh, notice that even if the uh, pixel size on the sensor chip is fairly large. 
uh, if you take enough of those images where the shadow shift incrementally, you would have collected enough information that you can then later process to get a high-resolution image out of that. So if, if your shadow is half on one pixel and half on the other pixel, if you move the light a bit, it's going to be slightly more than half on, on the first pixel and less on the second pixel. That's right. And you can use that information to work out exactly where the shadow should be sitting. That's right. You've got so essentially you've got your microscope, which is a camera with a light moving around over the top. So would you actually physically move the light around? Um, the way we we uh, implement the uh, light movement is uh, simply have a display, in which uh, we have the display showing a blob of uh, a round blob of white light, and then what that does is that uh, that blob of white light simply move around on the display, and that creates that different uh, uh, angular shift of the illumination that we require for doing imaging. Brilliant. So where would you actually see this being used? Um, so we see this as being useful for both uh, biology and uh, biomedical applications. So, for example, in, uh, in biology, uh, one of our collaborators is a stem cell researcher. And when he grows stem cells and when they start differentiating, some of those stem cells actually become highly motile. They move everywhere uh, on the chip, and it makes it very difficult for him to actually track uh, where his cells are going. Um, but if you actually grow those cells on this uh, sensor chip and do microscopy level imaging using our approach, you can then automatically track the cells uh, no matter where they are on the chip itself. Uh, so you won't have to actually go and find the cells. You can just take a bunch of snapshots and then later process it appropriately. So it's not just cheaper, it's actually doing something you couldn't do with another kind of microscope. That's right. Uh, so a conventional microscope typically have a very limited field of view. We're talking uh, typically about 100 microns by 100 microns. This uh, new technology allows us to see over the entire area of a sensor chip, which is typically on the order of 5 millimeters by 5 millimeters. I guess, and also it's a lot cheaper, so you could use it in a, um, a third world kind of situation. That's right. Um, one of the applications uh, associated with this is that you can actually use this potentially to look at uh, TB cell cultures, uh, TB bacteria cultures. Um, the way it is done right now is you would have to stick this, into, uh, you know, a, the TB uh, bacteria culture into a incubator and then uh, remove it at uh, regular uh, intervals to actually examine it under a microscope system. If you think about that whole process, right, it's really a uh, uh, labor-intensive, and you also actually run a significant risk of uh, having the samples being contaminated uh, due to this uh, constant shuttling between the microscope and the incubator. Uh, with the systems that we have, we can actually simply uh, stick the entire uh, imaging system into an incubator and have the incubator send out the information either through a wire out of the incubator or through Wi-Fi, and that allows you to actually you know, uh, image the cell in real time um, and track them without actually having to remove them from the incubator. Brilliant. Thank you very much um, from Chang Hu Yang from the California Institute of Technology with a beautifully elegant piece of engineering there. And Professor Yang will be with us for the rest of the show. So if you've got any questions for him or for Abigail or for either Dave or myself, then do get in touch through the usual routes. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and with Dave Ansell. Still to come, we'll be exploring other ways of seeing the world, using heat and using sound. And if you've got any questions about the topics we've covered so far, then do get in touch. As usual, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, scribble on our Facebook page, that's at thenakedscientists.com slash Facebook, or email chris at thenakedscientists.com.
But now it's time for a look at what's been hitting the scientific headlines this week. Embryonic nerve cells transplanted into a recipient brain can survive, can wire themselves up, and can even correct a metabolic disorder in vulnerable individuals. Successful brain repair will almost certainly depend on the addition of replacement healthy cells into the injured or diseased brain. But the fate of these fresh cells, and whether or not they can functionally wire themselves up to existing nerve circuits, is presently poorly understood. Now, scientists have proved that these cells can do this by using cell transplantation techniques to remedy an obesity-triggering metabolic disorder in mice. Writing in the journal Science, Harvard scientist Jeffrey Macklis and his colleagues transplanted 15,000 nerve cells collected from mouse embryos into these special obese mice who lack the receptor in their brains for an appetite-suppressing signal called leptin. These cells also produce a glowing green pigment so that they can be discriminated from the host's own brain cells, and they were implanted into a region of the brain known as the medial hypothalamus, and that, amongst other things, is responsible for controlling appetite. Five months later, the researchers looked for signs that these donor neurons were still present in the brain and that they had electrically connected to their host brain neighbours. The implanted cells, they found, had wired themselves in and were functional. And to prove that, they also found that the treated animals were 30% lighter and had more normal blood glucose levels when compared to control animals and mice that had received grafts from other brain regions. And this research is definitely a proof of concept that adding new cells really can repair a neuronal circuit and can return it to full function. Sounds very, very hopeful, doesn't it? Now, on a rather different subject, the lowest possible temperature you can get liquid water to has been calculated. If you ask any group of school children what temperature does pure water freeze at, you will normally get the answer 0 degrees Celsius, which is the standard answer and is a temperature below which ice is more stable than water. But that isn't the whole story. It's actually quite easy to get water below this temperature just by putting a bottle of very clean water in a freezer. Because although large crystals are more stable than liquid water, a very small one isn't. So most of them shrink and melt before they become big enough to be stable. But how cold can you actually get liquid water? Valeria Molinero and Emily Moore from the University of Utah decided to do away with the experiments entirely and try and solve this problem in a computer. This isn't easy as forming ice intrinsically involves a lot of water molecules and because they sort of form crystals and they break up all the time. And to get a meaningful result, they had to model over 30,000 water molecules interacting with one another. And in fact, in order to do it in a sane amount of time on the computer, they had to model their water molecules as a single lump rather than as three separate atoms. They found that as the water cooled, more and more of the water formed tetrahedral structures, which were somewhere between ice and water, both in their structure and in density, uh, which they call intermediate ice. And this can then either convert into ice proper or into disordered glass-like structure when the whole lot finally froze. Now, after all this work, they finally found that the theoretical lowest temperature you can cool water to, and it's actually minus 55 degrees Celsius, which is rather a lot colder than you'd expect. That's phenomenal. I mean, that's so far below its freezing point that it makes me question whether the freezing point really means anything. It is very meaningful, and it is the temperature which it's more stable at, but that doesn't necessarily mean it is the temperature which it will freeze at. 
Um, this all might sound quite academic, but supercooled water is very important in many types of cloud, and it's actually been discovered there at minus 40 degrees Celsius already. And understanding how water behaves at these temperatures will help understand clouds and so hopefully assist with weather and climate predictions. So modelling the coldest you could possibly get cold water is actually not just quite a lot of fun, but it's actually quite meaningful as well. Indeed. Well, speaking of water, the world's oldest fishing tackle, together with evidence of deep-sea fishing 40,000 years ago, has been unearthed in East Timor. Early human migrants, including those who first set foot in Australia around 50,000 years ago, were clearly competent mariners. The journey from Eurasia into the northern part of the Australian continent would have involved crossing a 1500 kilometer wide deep water archipelago and this is negotiable only by boat and good seamanship but archaeological evidence that this actually happened is very sparse now though sue o'connor from the australian national university and her colleagues working at a site in east timor called jeremalai have discovered evidence that early human inhabitants of the coastline were catching and consuming fish from the open ocean as far back as forty-two thousand years ago bones belonging to over 20 different fish species were recovered from an excavation at the site with about 50 percent of them belonging to so-called pelagic or open water species like tuna to catch these, the Jeremalai settlers would need to have had ventured out to sea armed, most probably with something like nets. But even more exciting is the discovery, amongst the other finds, of two primitive fish hooks that are carved from pieces of shell, and they date from around 24,000 years ago. This is the earliest evidence of fish hook manufacture we have ever found. And as the researchers point out in the paper that's published in Science this week, if you'd like to read more, they say capturing fish such as tuna requires high levels of planning and complex maritime technology. The evidence implies that the inhabitants were fishing in the deep sea. That's quite impressive at that time. It's remarkable that we had the, the technology, the skills, but I suppose that's what enabled us to make those journeys and to actually bridge those gaps was our ability to cope with the sea. I guess one of the problems with studying this sort of thing is that a lot of the evidence must be underwater because the sea level has gone up and down so much that all the coastal communities are going to be right underwater. And, of course, when you're dealing with evidence from things like fish, the bones are very small, very hard to, hard to find. Tiny hooks are obviously likely to get broken or lost. So the evidence has been hard to find, but it does now seem to be forthcoming. Indeed, now onto a rather higher level of technology. The first light diode has been built on a silicon chip. For many years, engineers have wanted to use light instead of electricity to build circuits. It moves slightly faster, but more importantly, signals can pass one another without interfering. This lack of interference, however, makes it very difficult to make the light beams interact when you actually want them to. One of the simplest electronic devices is a diode, essentially a one-way valve for electricity. In light, this would be a true one-way mirror, and they're actually incredibly difficult to build. They have built them, but they're several millimetres or even centimetres across, and it hasn't been possible to build them onto a silicon chip. When you say a true one-way mirror, what's wrong with the one-way mirrors that we see on all of the police programmes where you have your criminal on one side and your detective on the other? Well, those don't actually only let light through in one direction. They're essentially a partially silvered mirror, um, and the detective on the back is in a very dark room which means that there's both the reflection and the image from behind the mirror, but the behind the mirror is very, very dark, so you can't see it, and the reflection just completely kind of overwhelms the image through the mirror. 
So the effect that we see of it being a one-way mirror isn't really what it is, but this new diode genuinely will only let light through in one direction. That's right, and Caroline Ross and colleagues at MIT have actually managed to build this on a chip. Um, They've built a structure which involves a tiny conducting silicon loop electrical resonator, which can absorb energy from light which is passing through a nearby piece of garnet covering half of the loop. The garnet is actually magnetic as well as transparent, which is a very rare property. So applying a magnetic field means the loop will actually absorb a different colour of light if it's moving in one direction to the other. So if you pick your colour very carefully, it can actually absorb 100 times more in one direction than going in the other direction. In the first case, this type of device would probably be built on the front of a laser to stop reflections interfering with the laser's operation. But a diode is a vital component for building more complex photonic circuits in the future. So this sort of technology is actually essential if we are going to build these light-based computers. And actually, it's also very important to the internet because a huge amount of the information is transferred down optic fibres, which is light, and you have to convert that back into electronic signals at the moment and then convert it back to light for the next stage. So if you could do it all in light, it would be brilliant. Also this week, a study published in The Lancet has confirmed the safety of the widely used class of drugs known as statins. Now, these are the most commonly used drugs worldwide for heart disease and are taken by millions of people globally. A randomised heart protection study back in the mid-1990s found the drugs to be highly effective against heart disease, but subsequent epidemiological studies did raise some fears of an increased risk of cancer associated with taking them. Now, Richard Bulbulia from the University of Oxford has followed up the participants in that study from the 90s to have a look at any long-term effects. Richard, thank you ever so much for joining us. Good evening, Ben. What were they really looking at back in the 90s? Were they just confirming that statins did work and did do what we think they should? Observational studies made it clear, really for around 30 or 40 years, that people with higher levels of bad cholesterol had increased risks of vascular disease. Um, And to test whether this association was causal, people did large randomised trials, such as the heart protection study, which lowered cholesterol and consequently lowered vascular risk by around one quarter. But the same epidemiological studies that highlighted the relationship between cholesterol and vascular risk also showed an increased risk of certain cancers and other causes of uh, non-vascular death with lower cholesterol levels. Those of us who sort of responsibly interpreted that data um, suggested that those findings were due to something called reverse causality, whereby it's the the disease, such as the cancer, which causes the low cholesterol rather than the converse. But the concerns were out there and they substantially delayed the widespread use of, um, of statins. Now, the heart protection study, which reported its main results in 2001, had reassurance in that there were no excess risks of cancer or other non-vascular deaths associated with taking simvastatin 40 milligrams for around five years. But that five-year period was really too short to reliably address the prevalent concerns about the risks and safety of lowering cholesterol in many millions of people. And for that reason, we carried on following up all 17,000 surviving heart protection study participants for a further six years. So what have you actually been doing to follow them up? Are you just looking at medical records and incidences of different diseases or are you continuing to investigate more deeply what the lifestyle factors are? We followed the survivors in two ways. We asked them to complete postal questionnaires and the vast majority of the participants did so. And on these postal questionnaires, they told us certain things about their statin use after the trial period, whether or not they'd been to hospital, had any clinical events 
and also indicated whether or not they'd be happy to receive a subsequent questionnaire the following year. That questionnaire procedure was uh, augmented by accessing uh, national registries for cancer incidents and uh, death certification for people who either had cancers or died during the follow-up period. Surely after the original trial, the people who had been taking placebo, as it was a controlled trial, they must have then been offered the statins. So surely actually the conditions have changed. How do you take account for that? That's a very important point. At the end of the trial, it was clear that everybody in the heart protection study would benefit from at least discussing whether or not they should take a statin with their GP, and all were encouraged to do so. Gratifyingly, over the six-year period, more and more people in both treatment groups began taking statin therapy. So by the end of the trial, the average use of statins was around 75% in both uh, original treatment groups. So our long-term follow-up results, which were in The Lancet this week, actually assess the effect of the initial five-year randomization to either simvastatin or placebo over an 11-year period. I guess the, the fact that people did start taking them afterwards also means that you could actually stratify your results and show that people have been taking it for this long, you see the following effects, but if people have been taking it for twice as long, then either you see more effects or you still don't see any effect, which should help you to be able to say the concerns about cancer were in fact not actually applicable. That's correct. I mean, there were three main findings in our, in our study. The first two are connected, are looking at benefits. And it's important to remember that, that, that statins are an incredibly effective form of treatment. Now, during the randomised phase of the trial, the absolute benefits of statin therapy increased as treatment continued, with year-on-year reductions of around one quarter after the first in-trial year. And second, the absolute benefits that those originally allocated simvastatin accrued during the in-trial period persisted in the post-trial period. That is to say, the people originally on placebo and then switched to statin therapy after the trial had closed never caught up with the original simvastatin group. And those two findings do show that starting statins early and continuing them long-term is necessary to maximise the reductions in major vascular events. And following on from that clear message, it's also very reassuring to note that over an 11-year period, there was no suggestion of an emergence of hazard on cancer, either globally or in certain specific subtypes of cancer, uh, or indeed other forms of uh, non-vascular disease and specifically non-vascular death emerging in this large cohort of trial participants. So there's clearly a take-home message there. Thank you very much. That's Richard Bulbulia from the University of Oxford. And as he said, if uh, you're in the risk group, then you should start taking statins early and stay on them. Dave. And now with a look at what else has been sparking scientific interest around the globe, here's Miracentha Lingham with the Naked Science Newsflash. A contact lens capable of displaying electronic information quite literally in front of your eyes is being developed by scientists in the US. Challenges include powering the device and displaying complex information such as text, but Babak Parviz and colleagues at the University of Washington have so far combined a miniature radio receiver and light source within a lens and wirelessly sent pixels of data safely into the eyes of rabbits. You can imagine your cell phone might send some information to your contact lens. The contact lens has an antenna that can receive the information, has a radio that can process the information and run a display with it. And there's some extra focusing mechanism that allows you to see image. If you think about uh, our daily routines, we interact with a number of displays. There's a TV screen and there's a computer display, the cell phone display. But in a sense, we don't really need all of them. If we have a personal display that is our contact lens, we can 
get rid of all these extra displays that we see around us and just have one display that is personalized to the user. Sudden stress can cause changes in connections between different regions of the brain. Short bursts of stress are known to sharpen senses, impair abilities to deliberate and create fearful arousal, although how this is achieved by the brain wasn't known. But now, by exposing human volunteers to clips of violent and non-violent films and imaging their brain activity, Erno Hermans and colleagues from the Donders Institute have discovered the changes in the brain causing these responses. We see change in the way brain regions communicate with each other. Those are regions that are involved in uh, reorienting attention and also regulation of your autonomic nervous system and of regulation of the stress system. So what we see here is that those regions sort of become active together and form a network as if they're integrating information across all these domains. This might be a model for, for studying what happens in potentially traumatic situations. A new material that can glow for over two weeks after just minutes of exposure to sunlight has been developed by scientists at the University of Georgia. A mixture of chromium ions embedded in a matrix of zinc, gallium and germanium oxide was used to soak up the energy in visible light and release near-infrared wavelengths for up to 15 days. Inventor Zhengwei Pan on its applications. The first one is in the military defence and the law enforcement. And the other thing is solar energy absorption and storage. And the third application is we can make the material into nanoparticles so that we can put this particle into the body so that it can link to some tumor cell for bioimaging. The first night-flowering orchid has been discovered by scientists at Kew Gardens. The flower, now named Bulbophyllum nocturnum, originates from the island of New Britain near Papua New Guinea and was found to open a few hours after dusk and remain that way until a few hours after dawn. But it only does this for one night. The orchid is the only one of its kind known to flower only at night, with the reasons behind this behaviour a subject of speculation for orchid expert Andre Scheutman from Kew Gardens. Well, there are 25,000 species of orchids known approximately, and this is the first one of which we are certain that it is flowering at night. This is quite strange because related species flower during the daytime. We think this flower opens at night because it is pollinated by flies that are active after dark, or maybe early in the morning, when it's just getting dawn, probably to escape predators. More information and pictures of the orchid can be found on the Kew Gardens website at kew.org. And as usual, you'll find more science news along with references on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash news. This is The Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler and Dave Ansell. We will return to this week's topic of the science of seeing things in a minute. But first... Alien or non-native species can have a serious effect on the landscape and indigenous wildlife. Recent research in Australia has found that hikers could be partly to blame. During just one season in a national park there, hikers were found to carry up to two million plant seeds just in on their socks. James Bullock from Wallingford's Centre for Ecology and Hydrology was one of the authors of the study, which was based on some of his earlier work in Dorset. Planet Earth presenter Sue Nelson joined him in the picturesque section of the River Thames in Oxfordshire to see what they could find. River banks are actually one of the most invaded habitats we have in Britain. So the sort of species you might see along here are Himalayan balsam, 
or Japanese knotweed, all of which cause problems with riverbank stability affecting native biodiversity. What you'll see also this time of year is the chestnut leaf miner. A lot of chestnut trees, will have, their leaves will be almost removed by the mining of this moth caterpillar. Actually, we can see over here, just next to us, a Canada geese, which have been established in this country for a long time and cause a lot of problems, not just affecting native bird species, but by uh, pooing in waterways cause um, a fertilisation effect, which can affect what's growing in the water as well. So the effects then of invasive species are quite wide and varied. It's not just a threat to biodiversity in some cases? No, they have quite a wide range of effects. They can affect biodiversity directly, but they can also affect aspects of the natural world which are more of more direct impact on humans, such as bank erosion, pollution of waterways, causing problems with grazing lands. So you have invasive species spreading across grazing areas which uh, affects the ability of animals to graze on them. Now, the Australian study found that different parts of a hiker's clothing could spread different numbers and types uh, of seeds. There are some seeds which have hairs or bristles on them, which have probably evolved to allow their dispersal by animals. We come along with our, uh, our socks or our trousers, almost like an animal's skin, and forms a nice material for these seeds to attach to. So the more woolly the clothing you're wearing and the more bristly the seed, the more seeds will get dispersed by people. And how did this come out of research from Dorset? Well, we were interested in quite a different aspect of dispersal in Dorset. We were working on a species called wild cabbage there, which is quite a rare species restricted to our coastline, and it forms quite discrete populations along the coastline, which have been sitting there for probably hundreds of years. So we're interested in the reverse side of the question, what limits this species to grow where it grows, and what are the possibilities for its dispersal? Along the coastline of Britain, we have loads and loads of footpaths, and one possibility we thought of was that hikers could take the seeds of the cabbage around. So we did an experiment where we found that seeds, rather than socks or trousers, would stick into the, the mud on hikers' boots and could be transported very long distances. The natural dispersal by wind could take seeds a maximum of about 200 metres but hikers could take the seeds of over five kilometres. Is that why you want to know? Is that why you, you do this sort of research, in order to predict, possibly, or can you even predict, when you've got millions of seeds capable of sticking to somebody's hiking socks, what species are going to be transported where? Yes, the prediction is the key here. What we want to understand for alien species or non-native species is what species are transported, how far they're transported, and what are the mechanisms of their transportation. And the reason we do that is not simply understanding, but then we can use this sort of information in models of spread of these species to work out how we might limit that spread. So a lot of work on alien species so far has been saying, OK, we find the way the populations are growing and we go and try to kill them in some way. A much more efficient and effective method would be to prevent the movement of these species in the first place. And so that's what we're working towards, is understand the whole process of spread so we can look at the crunch points and limit that spread by especially targeting dispersal. How would you advise then to hikers, you know, how, how on earth are they going to limit the spread of, of seeds? Yes, that is a big question, and it could sound a bit over the top, telling people to be very careful about what they're transporting. But certainly in this study in, in Australia, this is a highly protected area. 
which is under threat from these European plant species coming in. So in that case, uh, the recommendation has been to put signs out for walkers, to educate walkers, to say, before you walk into these remote areas, just clean your trousers and socks off, just pick the seeds off before you spread them into these pristine areas. So I think in very specific circumstances, where we're trying to protect particular areas, there is something that can be done. That was James Bullock from the Centre of Hydrology and Ecology talking to Sue Nelson. There are more excellent Planet Earth online interviews on our website. Find them at thenakedscientist.com slash planetearth. Thank you, Dave. Now, you are listening to The Naked Scientists, and this week we're looking at new ways of seeing the world, from refined versions of microscopy to seeing things with heat and sound. To tie in with this week's theme, we've also released a new edition of our video podcast, Science Scrapbook. This time, we find out how the autofocus function on a camera works. You can find that at thenakedscientists.com slash scrapbook. Now, most people will have seen a thermal camera, a special type of camera that can detect the far-infrared radiation given out by hot things. These are used by rescue workers to find injured people, or also by the police to find hiding criminals. But they're also incredibly useful in the world of non-destructive evaluation, as the technique of thermography is great at seeing otherwise invisible defects in materials. I spoke to Tony Dunhill, Associate Professor in NDE at Rolls-Royce, and also President of the British Institute of Non-Destructive Testing. Thermography is is the use of temperature differences of a part, and, and it involves using a thermal camera. Now, the thermal cameras have come on in this world greatly over the last five or seven years, we're now able to use various forms of heat application. The most traditional is passive thermography, where you just look at a part and look for the hot spots. And that's used a lot in power stations, engineering structures, where you you might see a failing at a point and it gets hot just before it fails. Active thermography, you apply some heat, and that can be done with a flash lamp, with electrical induction, or it can be done with a laser. So the, the usual method is to apply some sort of heat, look at how that heat dissipates with time, and then within that time period, there'll be a point where a defect will reveal itself. Heating components, especially metals, tends to lead them to expand. Are you risking sort of obscuring problems that you might see with other techniques by perhaps expanding the material and therefore filling up cracks that might be there? Well, when we say we heat it... We heat it to a minute level. I mean, we're talking about changes of temperature at a maximum of about two degrees. So just by picking the thing up, you're putting the same amount of heat in as we're using. So the change in profile of the defect due to that heating is going to be minuscule. Although I have to say, if a crack is under a lot of compressive stress it is quite easy for heat to transfer itself across the crack and so that often is a poor detector under those circumstances. Whereas if the crack is is open, then thermal techniques is a much more viable method. So how else can we apply the heat? You said there'd be several different methods. So beyond literally just flashing a very bright hot bulb at it, how else can we make these cracks show themselves? Well, there's two methods that are are being worked at the moment. One is, is induction thermography, where you put the pass in an induction coil. That gives you a local region that you're heating, and if it's a long part, you can then just pass the, the, the piece through. The second method is, is with a laser spot, and, and this is very useful if you can't get very near the part. 
so like nuclear storage drums or something like that, then you can shine the laser at some distance away. You can use a thermal camera to see the heat spot caused by the laser, and then you can scan the laser around. And where it comes across a crack, then you'll get a change in the, in the dimensions of the heat spot. So this isn't just something that has to be done on an engineer's bench somewhere. You can actually use thermography in situ. Yes, so long as you can, you can get line of sight to the place you're interested in. And there are beginning to be quite useful boroscopes that can take infrared light. So access issues are becoming less of a problem. And distance can be quite effective. You, you can do the laser technique over quite a few metres and still have a, a fairly sensitive technique. You could even go through various forms of glass, provided it'll transmit the infrared. So we have lasers, we have induced heating. Are there any other means that we can create the heat and, and see these cracks? Well, quite often you, you don't necessarily need heat, but you could use cold. You can pass cold air on the rear surface of a part and it, it'll suck the heat away. And, and where, where there's a defect in the way, then that might retain the heat. As so long as you get this heat differential across the defect, then that's, that's usually what you're looking for. New coatings are being developed all the time and new alloys which change the way that the surface will oxidise. Does this mean that you're constantly having to review exactly how you apply these techniques in the light of these new developments? Where we have new materials, then we have to understand how that material property will affect the technique we're applying. So, yes, there's a sort of baselining of exercise you have to do. But, I mean, most metals behave in a similar way and most ceramics behave in a fairly similar way. So you can make a judgment. And and we have good theoretical understandings from our research centres that that support us. And the thermography one is particular at Bath University where we we take advice from them as to the different effects that new materials would have on the techniques we apply. That was Tony Dunhill from Rolls-Royce. Thermography is part of a great set of tools that we have for non-destructive evaluation. One technique which will probably be more familiar from medicine is sonography or imaging with sound. To find out how ultrasonic waves can help us see inside metal components, I met Bristol University's Professor Bruce Drinkwater. Well, the ultrasonic waves, similar form to acoustic waves, so we know they travel in air, but they also travel in liquids and solids. And so, you know, dealing with bits of metal, then ultrasonic waves travel really very nicely in in those bits of metal. And so we have a series of sources which emit ultrasound into the metal structure and they're reflected from all of the uh, interior structure, which obviously includes cracks. We can then pick up with our microphones, uh, ultrasonic microphones, actually they're small piezoelectric uh, elements, but uh, it doesn't really matter, they're they're, they're receivers of, of ultrasound. We can pick up that reflected energy, process it, and from that produce an image of the interior of the component. A lot of the materials that we might be looking at to try and find cracks are actually very highly, very precisely made materials in the first place. Often they can be a single metallic crystal. Does that actually affect the way that the ultrasound would travel through? Yes, the crystal structure is utterly paramount to how waves travel in it. So the the single crystals are anisotropic in their material properties, which, as far as ultrasound is concerned, means that waves travelling in different directions go at different speeds. And as you can imagine, if we're not very careful, that could create all sorts of confusions. We have to compensate and take account of the, the fact that the velocities are different, the speeds of sound are different in different directions. And if we do that, then we can produce images uh, as if the uh, velocity was uniform. So essentially you 
use some kind of algorithm or some kind of computer modelling to, to compensate for how you know the sound would travel in a pristine example. And that therefore means that you can compare your example to pristine and easily see if there's something wrong. Yeah, we, we need to have a, a model of, of the structure we're, we're trying to test in order to correctly image it. And one of the big challenges is when you go to a component and try to make a measurement where there's uncertainty in, in that model. And so one of the things we have been working on is what we call autofocus techniques, where your camera automatically adjusts to put things in focus, where, whereas we have been working on ways of, of, of trying to automatically extract this picture of, of what the structure is like, so this model, without knowing it beforehand or, or say it's the particular principle orientation direction is, is unknown. But we can extract that from the data itself if we know something about the uh, structure, like, for example, how thick it is. In terms of detecting cracks, the, the real challenge is, is somewhat different to the medical challenge where you've got this very rich image. The interior of a of piece of metal is, you'd have thought, relatively simple, and it is, but there's a lot of scattering from other things within the material, like grain boundaries, although they don't occur in the single crystal example we just talked about. But uh, uh, in most metals, there are many grain boundaries, all reflecting ultrasound, and there may or may not be cracks. And so the challenge is to achieve that high-resolution imaging performance of the crack surrounded by these other scatterers, which basically set the signal-to-noise ratio of your measurement or the best possible measurement that you can make. And I assume that signal to noise is ultimately what will limit the the resolution with which we can view these and the actual minimum size at which we can first detect that crack. Yeah, and that that's always the challenge to detect the smallest possible crack. And that that's we're always trying to push the the limits of what's possible there. And that's what I'm interested in as a researcher. That's Professor Bruce Drinkwater from Bristol University. And this is The Naked Scientist with me, Ben Valsler, and with Dave Ansell. And we now have a chance to answer a couple of your questions. We've had one on Facebook from Luciano Medrano, and he sent us a picture of what apparently are atoms. There are certain types of microscopy, Dave, that can apparently show us atoms. But he asks, what are we really seeing? Are we seeing atoms? Are we seeing electron clouds? What does it really show us? Pretty much all of the kinds of microscopy which can see atoms are forms of electron microscopy. Um, some of them are actually or atomic microscopy where you're either firing electrons at a surface and getting them to bounce off or you're getting firing atoms at the surface and getting them to bounce off and you can build pictures from that. But actually the more common one is actually called uh, forms of scanning electron microscopy. Um, these um, have a very, very sharp point um, and they just scan this point across the surface on an atomic sort of resolution, so you build up lots of lines. And the point is moved up and down to either produce a constant force, which is called atomic force microscopy, or a, co a constant electric current, which is called scanning tunneling electron microscopy. And so the point moves along, and it goes up and down until you get this constant current. Um, so what you're seeing is something to do with the electrons on the surface. Either it's how hard they're pushing the point up and down, or it's to do with how much, how well they conduct and how well electricity can move up into the point. Um, by changing the voltage, you can actually get different pictures and you can see um, look at electrons at different parts of the atom and you can actually do some very cunning bits of um, science on that. So although we're looking at different properties of the atom itself, what we build up with is an image built by 
inference. We're inferring that because of the change in electrical properties or the change in mechanical properties, there is therefore something there. And it's on such a small scale that we can actually infer the exact position of an atom. Yeah, that's right. Um, And something which was very neat, which was done a while ago, which I saw in the news, um, was that they were doing things on a sheet of graphene, which is such a regular repeating structure that you can subtract away this um, background pattern of um, which you're getting in your mic- in your picture and just leaving the atom on the surface. So you could actually see hydrogen atoms attached to carbon atoms, which are absolutely minute and you couldn't possibly see in other ways. Thank you, Dave. And now reflecting on a tricky question, here's Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. This week, the problem with reflections. While standing in front of the mirror in my bathroom, I can see a reflection of the TV screen from the bedroom. It is blurry when my glasses are off and much clearer when I put my glasses on. One morning I was interested in a show on TV while I was drying my hair, so I figured I could watch what was going on if I put my face very close to the mirror while I dried my hair. I tried, but no matter how close I got to the mirror, the reflected image of the TV stayed blurry. I was close enough to where I normally can see an object clearly without my glasses. Why would that be? Thank you. So even though the TV ought to be close enough, why does the mirror keep it blurry? Hi, my name's Brian Robertson. I'm a research associate at the Photonics and Sensors Group. We're based in the Department of Engineering at the University of Cambridge. In answer to your question, you have to focus a camera or your eyes because as the light leaves an object, it spreads out. But to get a good image, the lenses in your eye have to bend all the light from one point on the object onto one point on the retina in the back of your eye. If you are close to an object, the light is spreading out more quickly, so the light needs more bending to produce a sharp image and come into focus than if you are far away. The eye adjusts to these distances by changing the shape of the lens. Short and long-sightedness occur when the eye is less able to accommodate these changes. Light reflecting from a mirror gives the impression that the object is behind the mirror, and you get this impression because the light, having reflected from the mirror, is moving exactly as if it were coming from an object behind the mirror. This is not just true of the direction of the light is travelling, but it's also how the light is spreading out. So your eye does exactly the same job focusing on an object that appears 10 metres away in the mirror as focusing on the actual object 10 metres away. So if you're short-sighted, the object, in this case the television screen, still appears blurred regardless of how close you are to the mirror. On the forum, RD said that it doesn't matter how close you get to the mirror when an object is a certain distance from it. If you're short-sighted, then the lens in your eye cannot adjust for the amount of spread the light has taken over that distance. He also mentioned that a convex mirror can cause the object to appear even farther away as it spreads the light even more. Again, making it blurry if you're short-sighted. Next week, nails on a blackboard. Hi, this is Paul from Waldingham. I was just wondering what the sensation was when your blood runs cold, say from fingernails scraping down a school blackboard. The sensation seems to start in the skull and then travel down the back and into your spine. So obviously something to do with nerves. But what is happening? Thanks for a great show.
What happens to you when you get those spine-tingling shivers? Let us know what you think by emailing chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can write on the forum at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. You can Twitter at Naked Scientists, or you can check out our Facebook page. That was Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week. So if you've got an answer for Diana's consideration, then get in touch. But that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to our production team of Tom Simpkins, Miracentha Lingam and Diana O'Carroll. And thanks to Changhui Yang, Abigail Woodfin, Richard Bulbullier, Tony Dunhill and Bruce Drinkwater. Next week, we're diving into the depths to look at underwater archaeology and engineering. So get your wetsuit on and tweet any questions to at Naked Scientists. Write them on our wall at thenakedscientists.com slash Facebook or email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. The Naked Scientists podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.